Dear Heavenly Father, what a joy, as always, to be here on a Sunday morning, on a bright, sunny day, gathered with those of like mind and heart, Father, in your body. Thank you, Father, for the gift of faith that brings us into this room. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open your word and for uh, the chance to see another time, another place, but then again, the same body, the same Lord over the church, the same needs in many cases, Father, to know that you've preserved this letter for us for so long so that its work would not be done just in the day it was written, but it would continue even to today. Thank you, Father, for the, the blessing and the opportunity to study in this way. May your words be uh, the words I use. May you speak through me, Father. May the Holy Spirit guide the learning of the class, and may all we do be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, open up to Colossians. A little memory trick, if you're not sure where to find it, is that Paul's letters, uh, there's four in a group that can easily be remembered as G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Some people shorten that to G-E Power Company. And if you can remember that in your mind, you might be able to find the four letters that kind of sandwich there between Corinthians and Thessalonians. So anyway, the G-E Power Company, we are at the C of that, so we are at the last of those four. It was written by Paul, as you all know, and I'm not going to delve a lot into Paul's life at this point. I think for the most part, you probably know most of the pertinent details about who he was, where he came from. Uh, This is written at a point when Paul was in Rome in house arrest. You know, if you know Acts, you know he went into Rome as a part of his uh, last ministry trip. And when he showed up, they put him into house arrest in Rome. He actually traveled as a prisoner all the way to Rome. House arrest was interesting. It was confinement, yes, but with a lot of freedom. So he took visitors, and he received guests, and he wrote letters and sent them out. And he was very active, even in that state of house confinement, evangelizing from this place in Rome. It was very interesting, the the situation God gave him. And he spent two years in that status. So it was actually a period of relative ease and comfort for Paul, if confinement can be considered ease and comfort. It wasn't the same kind of, of prison experience that he may have seen elsewhere earlier in his ministry. He wrote this to a small community called Colossae or Colossae. Colossae was located in modern-day Turkey, and it is a sister city to a couple of other cities you'll recognize. Laodicea, Ephesus, and if you know those letters, obviously Ephesus has a letter out of Revelation that we hear about, and Laodicea has a letter out of Revelation that we hear about. It was also a very near place called Heropolis, kind of a community of small towns all in the same region of, of Turkey. It's wide, this letter, by the way, is widely considered to be a letter written to the least important city in all of Paul's ministry. So of all the cities he wrote letters to, this city by far was the least important. It'd be like writing a letter to the city of Bernie. Right? It was just not a very important town. It, didn't, it was not an important town for commerce. It was not an important town for political purposes. It was basically a backwater little town near a lot of other cities that did have prominence for one reason or another. The topics of the letter, however, are some of the most important in any letter Paul wrote, which is this interesting kind of dichotomy where you have a very unimportant city getting a very important letter. Paul never visited the city himself. They never knew him personally. He was not the founder of this church, unlike many of the other places where he was the original founder. So he's writing to strangers for the most part. Now, he was known by virtue of his reputation, but he didn't have a personal relationship with this group. He had visited nearby Ephesus, And when he was there, he met a man named Epaphras. Epaphras lived in Ephesus, but he was from Colossae. So he had moved out to the big city, if you will. When Paul met him there, he came to faith under Paul's teaching. So Epaphras was a believer by the hand of Paul 
as the Holy Spirit used Paul in his ministry. Epaphras eventually went back to Colossae, or Colossae, and he founded the church there. So one man's introduction of the gospel through Paul in Ephesus resulted in another city seeing the gospel come to it. So that's the connection here. Now Paul, as we said, sits in Rome right now awaiting trial and house arrest. He's receiving letters, uh, visitors and he's writing letters. And apparently, and we get this sort of between the lines, reading between the lines in this letter, we find out that while he was in house arrest, Epaphras visited him in Rome. So Epaphras travels all the way back to see Paul, and this is not unusual. A lot of his friends, Timothy, we're told in the letter, is with Paul here at this time. So a lot of men that he had discipled over his life had come to visit him in Rome and encourage him. Epaphras was one of those. But the visit from Epaphras was very important for another reason. When he showed up and he talked to Paul, he shares with Paul that the church back in Colossae, where Epaphras is from, is battling a long list of threats. It's contending with a long list of threats that stand the chance of actually undermining the church there in Colossae to the point where the church might go away or be so distorted by false teaching that it's no longer the sound church that it once was. So he's not just there to encourage Paul, he's coming for help. This also gives you some insight in how big a man Paul was in the early church. I mean, I guess it's obvious when you look at the letters. He's like the Billy Graham of his day, rolled in with about five other people you want to name. You know, there's just no one even in close second place. He's the, uh, next to John, he's the last living apostle by this point. And so his, his ministry as he comes out from anywhere, whether it's by letter or in person, carries huge weight. Remember, apostleship, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but apostleship was a position. It was an office. And in that office, it brought certain powers, literally certain supernatural powers. That's how you established your authority as an apostle. That's how you proved it. So Paul had supernatural ability. And he could show up and do things that no other man could do because of what God had gifted him to do. It made him a scary individual if you were on the wrong side of Paul. So he has this weight and authority behind him. And Epaphras is coming to kind of seek the wise man on the mount's involvement in Colossae. Here's what he told him. He said there were false teachers undermining the person and the preeminence of Christ. We'll see that here in a minute in the letter. These people were introducing man-made philosophies in place of sound Christian doctrine. They were battling increasing legalism within and around the church, principally from a Judaism point of view, but also from other forms, perhaps Oriental or other Greek Hellenistic philosophies. They were being told to venerate angels. Venerate means to elevate to the level of deity, to worship angels. They were being taught by false teachers that they should not eat certain foods, that they had to abstain or, in, or participate in certain festivals and rituals. Does any of this sound familiar? Have you heard of these kinds of things before in your own experience? Some of us may have come out of churches, either in our early years or perhaps even more recently, that were legalistic, for example. That in their style of bringing up the faithful, they handed out rules and judgment left and right. That kind of went hand in hand with being a part of the church. You had to live certain ways, do certain things, and they were very rigorous in enforcing those behaviors within the body. I, I hope nobody's been in that situation, but I've seen it myself. Or perhaps we've heard of movements that exist today in some churches toward a kind of new age self-help appeal that says it's all about us and how we think about what our circumstances are, or how we orient our mind, and in that we have the secret to success as a Christian. Now, there's a church movement like that not far uh, from San Antonio on the other eastern end of our state. If you're, all one of the, if you're one of these people 
who came out of a legalistic church or perhaps out of one of these new age self-help style of, of churches, then this letter was written to you. Because this is a letter written to a congregation, not to the leadership, but to the congregation, to help them contend with these movements and not fall prey to them, which is the principal concern Epaphras had. So Paul writes this letter to this small church he's never visited. And I want to give you a little side note of the history. It's really quite fascinating. Paul sent this letter to Colossae with two travelers, one of whom was Onesimus, and the other one was Tychicus. Now, you wouldn't know anything about Tychicus, except he's mentioned in the letter. But Onesimus, who's also mentioned in the letter, is the slave who was running from Philemon. Remember the letter to Philemon? is the letter that Paul wrote and gave to Onesimus and said, Onesimus, this is a man who was running because he had been a slave of Philemon and he ran. While he's in prison with Paul, he comes to know the Lord. And then Paul gives him this command. He says, now that you know better, you have an obligation to go back to your master because what you did was illegal. And you now need to rectify your mistake. Which is very interesting because in our culture, slavery is an absolute negative from every perspective and you'd never consider that giving that advice to someone but in Paul's mind the law of the land allowed for it the legal proper thing to do as a slave was to return to your master now that you know that God's expectations are that you would obey the commands of the authorities that, that you have over you but to make it a little easier on Onesimus Paul writes the letter that we call Philemon gave it to Onesimus to take to his master whose name was Philemon and explain the circumstances a little bit well, Onesimus and Tychicus take the letter that Onesimus has in his hand to Philemon. But to get to where Philemon lived in Colossae, he had to go through Ephesus to get there. So here's a letter to the Colossians. By the way, here's your letter to take to Philemon when you see him. And since you're ending up in Ephesus, here's a letter, the letter to the Ephesians. So these two men took the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to Philemon, and the letter to Colossae in their hands in this one trip returning. Paul got three letters out in one time. It's interesting. They're all called the prison epistles for that reason, along with one more, Philippians, which didn't get delivered at this same time, but was written in this same period. It's a little history about how those letters are connected. Okay, I'm giving you this lecture, but we're going to start here in a minute with the text, and then it's your turn to help me go through some of the text, because I do have questions. I want to take time to ask them and let you all participate. So, so Paul, Paul has a difficult task here. I want you to start to think a little bit like Paul. In fact, as we study Colossae, or the letter to the Colossians, the whole way through, your task with me is to be Paul. Now, I know the tendency and the need at some point is to apply this to ourselves as if we were the church at Colossae, and that's good too. We'll do plenty of that. But I, I think you'll understand how it is supposed to be received if you understand Paul's purpose in writing and if you put yourself in his position. That's going to make this a lot easier. He has a difficult job here. Number one, what is Paul's first concern if he's going to try to teach this church to the right path? Think of it in terms of who he is versus who they are. What's his first challenge? Yes, because they don't know you. They've never met you. They've never physically heard your voice. They've never set eyes on you. You know, today we could accept some level of authority from a stranger because more than likely, if they have any prominence, we've already seen them on TV. We've already heard them. I know that's not the same thing as seeing them in person, but in our culture, it's so easy to transmit voice and image. We just kind of... Make, you know, forget that in an age where you could not know someone except to meet them, to never have met them, it's just a name. Oh yeah, the Paul that's out there somewhere writing letters. Who is this guy? He calls himself an apostle. Who's Paul? So you don't have any reason to believe they're going to accept your word necessarily. And then you have a double problem. Because while you're limited to writing letters from a prison in Rome, the people you're going to contend with 
your enemies, so to speak, the other side of the argument, so to speak, are living amongst these people. They are the teachers living in that church. So now, uh, put it in modern-day context. You are in some way an authority, let's say, in the church, and you find out there's a church in Seattle that's got real problems. They don't know you, they've never met you, but they do know and have heard that you have some authority. And somebody from that church travels to you and says, I need you to write a letter that will help me contend with all this false teaching. And you say, I'm going to help you, you bet. Let me write it out for you, take it back. Now, why is that church going to listen to a letter from you here because, you know, the moment it's read, some false teacher in the crowd is going to pop up and say, oh, that's nonsense. You know, you've heard me. Let me tell you. You know me. You know, you know what I do here. Let me tell you what, what's wrong with that letter. How are you going to contend? How are you even going to have a hope to contend with that kind of a debate? That's Paul's first concern. So he's got to contend with the fact that he has no authority in their minds or very little. Secondly, he's got to contend with the issues, but he can't crush their spirit. You know, it's fine. It'd be real easy. Parents, you all would have the same parallel. Any of us would have the same parallel when raising kids. Real easy to cross the line between discipline and getting to the place where now we're really crushing their spirit. There's not the, the learning opportunity is gone, and now we're just building up barriers. Doesn't take long before you realize if you come down too hard, you're working against your own purpose in trying to encourage them along the right path. Well, Paul's got that same issue here with the church that could be very vulnerable to, to being too harsh. Third thing he's going to do, and you're going to see this in the letter, third, third and final thing, he's got to get the right teaching in their minds. So I've got to, I've got to show you I, I have rights to teach this. I've got to contend with the false teaching and show you that those people are wrong. And then I've got to give you what's right. That's the basics of all teaching, of all ministry, really. It's about establishing credibility with one another in our walk here within this fellowship. Having done that, we have a role of ensuring that the teaching is sound, that there isn't false teaching taking place, the leadership is doing its job. And then on, all of, on, on everything we do, we want to build up the faithful with good teaching. We want to continually reinforce people with what's true. That's the basics of ministry. Otherwise, we just go off and do our own thing by ourselves. Let's go into the text, Colossians 1. We're just going to read 1 through 8 to start with. I'm going to be reading out of the NASB. That's just my personal preferred version, but it doesn't make a lot of difference which one you're using. Let's go through Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Those opening verses consist of two sentences in the Greek. In fact, the next like six verses are another sentence. So Paul, in typical style, is, is building on thought after thought after thought before he figures out he can use a period. And this, is, this just requires that we break it down a little bit. Uh, in the Greek, it's one sentence from verse 3 through verse 8. You may have it broken out in different ways. The English sometimes does that. This is the open salutation. If you ever studied a letter, if you ever studied an epistle, people tend to kind of get bogged into the, the salutation almost immediately. And you almost, if you're like me, you feel like, hey, come on, he was just being nice. He just was saying nice things. Hey, let's move on. 
But in reality, there's so much more here than that. I'm not going, what I want you to do is I want you to see that Paul is already setting himself up for the arguments he's going to make. This is not idle language. This isn't fluff. He's not just throwing compliments at them so he can kind of wear them down, if you will. He's already setting up the arguments with these people. But you have to see that by virtue of knowing where Paul's going. So let me show you how he's doing that. And I'll ask you some questions along the way here. First, he begins by referring to himself as an apostle. He does this a lot. If you were to go look across all his letters, more often than not, he is doing this in the opening salutation. Sometimes not, but almost always he does. When he did it, look at how he did it. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. He does this a whole lot. In Galatians 1, for example, the very first verse of Galatians starts this way. Paul, an apostle, and then he gives this parenthetical definition. He says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, that's a much more expansive kind of justification than he did here, but it's the same thought. I'm an apostle, not because a man said I could be, because God told me I was. Which means this isn't a matter of you and I debating over whether I have the right qualifications or whether or not I happen to have the right pedigree or I came out of the right system. It's not up to you. And frankly, it wasn't even up to me. God made that decision and appointed me as an apostle. What is an apostle? The word apostle means a messenger sent by God. So you're right. But it probably begs another question, doesn't it? Does that make me an apostle? Can just anyone call themselves an apostle? And there are, there are men today who do that. Define for me who is or could be an apostle by script, in terms of Scripture. What would be the definition? Someone who had direct contact with Jesus Christ. Okay, that would be my first and most important qualification because of the way Paul puts it. Well, not only because of that, because of the Gospels, obviously. The accounts of the Gospels make clear Jesus set, up, set about picking his apostles. Remember in John chapter 6 when Peter says, Where would we go, Master? We have learned that you are the Christ. And he says, Oh, really? He says, Is it not me that picked you, the twelve? emphasizing to Peter in chapter 6 of John just to make the point, hey Peter, I'm glad you think you figured it out, but let me tell you, I knew before you did. I picked you before long before you came up to me and decided you were going to be my apostle. It didn't work that way, you remember? So how is it that Paul calls himself an apostle in light of the fact that Jesus was dead before Paul became a believer? Yeah, let me make a distinction for you because I hear where you're going and that's, that's good. There's disciple and then there's apostle. And disciple means a student a follower. An apostle means one sent with a message. In the, in the literal Greek, that's what the two words mean. We are all disciples. Those who believe in the gospel are, by definition, a disciple of Christ. Not all of us are apostles. And the distinction is one of an office versus a calling or a, or a new knowledge. We, by virtue of knowing who Christ is, become his follower and have been changed supernaturally. We receive the Holy Spirit. All of that makes us a disciple of Christ. All right? We can be a bad disciple or we can be a good disciple. Just like students in any class, right? An apostle was a position he gave to certain disciples. And you can see this most clearly. I think it's in Luke chapter 6 or 7. I can't remember now. And it's the same in the other Gospels. Where he takes the, the crowd that's been following him and he goes to, the, to a mountainside and he takes 12 of them away from the rest and he appoints those 12 as, as apostles. So it's a culling out of the larger group to create a smaller subgroup that he gives this special office to. So there are some that are apostles. You can look at it this way. All are disciples, not all are apostles. Okay? What is an apostle then? First and foremost, they were appointed by Christ, but not in some distant secondary way, but through a personal moment in his presence. 
So in the time of the gospel, it was Christ standing in flesh before the 12 men that he called apostles. Then we know one of them was a devil. He says that himself in John 6. He says, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil, referring to Judas, who would betray him. Judas was never a disciple. This is what's interesting about Judas. He never believed. He was a false confessor. He was the, per- the property of the enemy. He was there as a wolf in sheep's clothing. He never was a believer. He was always an unbeliever. He was just simply gathered into the group. And yet Christ selected him as an apostle and then even said as much when he said, and yet I selected one who I knew was a devil. Why? Because he needed a betrayer. Would you betray Christ? Would you send him to the cross? No disciple would. The only way he was going to get a betrayer was as if he brought someone close into his inner circle who was not one of the group. So by preserving an unbeliever within his group just long enough that he could fulfill God's purpose in the betrayal, he had a, a, a man ready to do the work God needed done, of course through the enemy, but that doesn't mean God himself taking a step back didn't have the whole plan in mind and put it all together. He just used the enemy for part of his plan. Okay? So it was always the case that Christ knew after the cross there would only be 11 of them remaining. And yet Christ says when he talks about the end, the coming millennial kingdom, the time when he returns to earth and reigns on earth, He says to the disciples in Matthew that you will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. That will be your role. Your special position in the millennial kingdom will be as an authority helping me rule, ruling with me, and your special authority will be to rule over the 12 tribes. Well, wait a minute. 11 apostles, 12 tribes. What happens for that extra one? Now that Judas is gone, where do I get the next one from? how 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 did men try to fill that void? Remember? Acts chapter 1. Through a lot, and they chose who? This is is extra bonus question. Matthias. Matthias, the lot fell to Matthias. Was he the apostle? Remember the definition. Was he an apostle? No. I mean, they they were good-hearted about it. They had the best of intentions. They were trying to do what they thought was right. The lots fell a certain way. They picked Matthias. Sorry, Matthias, it doesn't work that way. You know, you're not the apostle. Who is? Paul. Paul is the twelfth apostle, and he goes, he goes through this over and over and over again in all his letters, telling folks, I'm an apostle. Now, they may have contended with that claim because they know he wasn't there when Christ walked the earth. So what does he have to do to go out of his way time and time again, like he does in Galatians? Not sent from men, nor through the agency of men. Agency of men means like from government, like, like a system of a selecting, uh, it's like the Pope kind of idea, that because there's a system now that replaces Christ, it can select the next man in charge that's not, what how, that's not how it works. He says, not by man or by the agency of men, but rather through Jesus Christ. And there, here again, as we saw today, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul was your twelfth apostle, the one for the Gentiles. But he will rule over the twelve tribes. I have no idea which one gets which tribe, but that's how he sets himself up. Now, I spent some time on that because I want you to understand how important it is to him for this group that they know who he is. All right? We'll move through the rest of these verses, sort of looking at it briefly. He's got a sincere purpose behind these. These are not flattery. He's saying things that he's sincere about. But his purpose behind them is not to make them feel better about themselves. It's to remind them of some things that he will use later in the letter. Number one, look at verse three. I'm just going to break these down. Break them down with me. Verse three, he says, we thank God. Now, look at the pattern here in verse three. We thank God, Father of Jesus Christ. We have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for the saints. There's this intentional repetition of Jesus' name and his position as Christ. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. 
you know, this should be no big deal, right? I mean, you, do you need a lot of reminding of the fact that you're a Christian because of your faith in a man, a person, Jesus Christ? He's, it's a thankfulness that's genuine, but his point here is to continue to point them back to Christ. I'll, we'll look at that here again more in a moment. Verse 5. What's he saying in verse 5? You have a hope for eternal reward. You learned of this hope when you heard the gospel, which has come to you just as it has come to the whole world. Put, put on your thinking caps, as teachers like to say. What is the basic purpose in stating that? You're, you're Paul. You've got a problem with this church. You're trying to help them. What are you, what are you setting yourself up with with that comment? Yeah, but, but I want to make it more, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's through and because of Christ. But what is it specifically you're hoping for, you're looking forward to? Every Christian should have this answer on the tip of their tongue. Why is it you're happy to be a Christian? And so what? All right, heaven is what? You're right, you're getting there, but what is heaven? But if it's never anything more than harps and clouds and angels, you've, you've, just, you've missed what the scriptures have been given to you for, to let you know about, to give you something concrete. What does that mean? What does it look like? What are you waiting for? What, what gives you hope today that means, I don't care what happens today, because who... All this stuff's going to burn up one day, right? It's that thought of, I'm a wanderer in a foreign land, Scripture says. We are waiting for our true country to descend from the clouds. There is yet an inheritance for each of us that is not rooted in anything that you can see or touch in this world right now. It's to be with him, but in a very specific context. It's this thousand-year reign on earth to begin with, followed by a new heaven and new earth to follow it, in which you will be in a body that cannot sin, you will be freed from that corruption. You will not have pain and suffering and crying and tears and all the things that Scripture goes on to. I'm kind of just throwing it all together from different places in Scripture. There is a very real, tangible existence. It's not you in a cloud. It's not ethereal. You're in a physical body, a new fleshly body that is different than the one you have now. Without sin in it, you cannot sin. You're going to be in a world where Christ is physically present on the earth with you. He is the ruler of this earth and you are ruling with him. We're told the saints will rule with him at some level. You wake up every day, you go to work, you come home, you sleep. It says you're going to farm and reap the produce of that. You're going to have a home that you build and it doesn't wear out. You're going to have a real, and this is not just you know, metaphorical language, this is literal language. If you have any interest in knowing some of this detail and you haven't studied it before, I'll just put in a shameless plug here. There's a Revelation study I've taught. It's online, free. Download the whole thing. It's, it's 52 uh, hours of teaching, and you can go through the entire book of Revelation and see all of this stuff. But what I'm trying to emphasize for you is that's what this church knew about. Paul was very big on this. He taught it everywhere he went. Go look at the letters he taught to the church at Thessalonica when he goes into great detail for them about, remember, I taught you all this before. Remember, you knew all these things about the Antichrist and about Christ's return and about what life would be like when he comes back. And... That's the tangible, literal hope that all Christians should have at the, at the kind of the center of what it is they're looking forward to. The reason I've been saved is for an eternity with Christ. That eternity includes this whole new life that I'm just, could be a heartbeat away from. It's coming sooner or later. And that hope is so real and tangible to me because I know what the scriptures say about it. That all of a sudden, this piece of junk, <laughs> who cares? I mean, I've used this analogy before. It's like if you had a, a junker car that's so old, you wondered if it would start every day you got in it. And you hate it, but you kind of need it because you have nothing else. But then you know that your parents, upon your graduation in six months, are going to give you a brand new car. You've already picked it out. You even know what it looks like. 
How much care and concern do you have for your junker for that last six months? You'd be lucky to even wash it, right? Much, and you certainly wouldn't spend any money on it. You just, the bare minimum, just to get me through those six months, right? Because what I'm waiting for, what I'm invested in in my mind, is that future vehicle. Because that's the promise that I've been given, and that's where I, that's the thing I want. I don't want this. That is literally what the hope that is in each of us should feel like, such, such that we don't waste a lot of time investing in a world we know is going to burn up anyway, and, and has no appeal to us anyway. If, if your life, though, centers around what's in this world, then death is a scary thing, right? That's the problem with a Christian who thinks of death in that respect. They don't have the right focus. Their hope is in the wrong area. So it doesn't change your salvation, fortunately. But the point is, he's saying, look, remember, I told you, or I guess he's thanking them here, you learned about this eternal reward, he says. And you learned of this hope when I taught you this hope. And that's what you centered in when you heard it. And the other half of this that he mentions here in verse 5 is, the whole world, by the way, is with you in this. He's going to make this point here and again in verse 6 that you're not alone. You don't have the secret key. What you learned is not unique to your church. You know, there's a sense in this letter, and it grows as you get into chapter 2, that whoever they are that are teaching this church wrongly, they've begun to isolate this little community. Think of it. They're like Waco. They're perfect. They're small. They're, in the, they're kind of set apart from a bunch of other big cities, a little more closed-knit community, a little more vulnerable to someone who would come in and sort of take them away from the mainstream and cut them off. They're in that kind of a position physically. And, though, and, and apparently in the teaching, they had begun to hear things that suggested, you know, you don't have the whole story. There's a little secret piece you're missing. Let me tell you about the other little secret knowledge you need in order to be good with God. The practices you need to follow, the things you should know. You know, I've got that secret. Come, let me tell you what it is. Paul's trying to back them out of that a little here, even in the early verses, and say... You know, what you heard, same thing everybody else has heard. And what it did for you, look what it's the same thing it's doing for everybody else. You're not off on your own island. You didn't get anything different than the group. He says, verse 6, it's bearing fruit as it is in the world. From the day you understood it. Not from some subsequent day. It didn't require some additional knowledge. What you got on day one was good enough to last forever. And it's the same thing everybody else got and it's producing fruit with you just like it's producing fruit with everyone else. He's trying to connect them into the world as opposed to the isolation that apparently they've started to experience through this false teaching. And then finally he says, and by the way, it didn't just come from me. Or maybe another way to say it is, you got it from Epaphras, but now you're hearing it again from me. It's not unique to one person. It's not just one person who's told you this stuff. So you can see what he's doing here. Let me kind of summarize it. False teachers, and I I would imagine if this letter was being read those false teachers are starting to squirm a little bit, even in these early verses. Because he's saying, look, Jesus is preeminent. He's the Son of God. He's the object of our faith. He's the Word of Truth. We'll see him go after that more here in the rest of the first chapter. He says, you have to love one another, or you have been loving one another, as you should. And that that theme of caring is going to come up again later. And he says, your hope lies in an eternal reward located in heaven. That's going to come up again later. So I'm just showing you how he's laid out some issues that are going to become prominent in the letter later. Finally, and he does this brilliantly, which, you know, Paul is Paul. He doesn't need my compliment. But he's building this pattern here. He reminds them of what they believed and the positive effect it had on their lives, together with the fact that what they experienced was not unique. They believed the same gospel the world believed. And it contrasts largely with what they must have been hearing, I'm assuming, from this false teacher. All right. That's the background. Let's just keep it there. 
Let's go to 9 through 14. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so He begins now on the first issue for the church. He starts by saying we, that's who. Who's the we here? Well, it's Paul and who? Timothy. He started the letter saying, I, Paul, and Timothy. In fact, it's led some people to speculate, and you can take this or leave this if you want, that Timothy wrote the letter, but sort of under Paul's tutelage. That Paul may have said, here are the points I want you to cover, Timothy. Here's the general outline. Go write it for me. Kind of like a ghostwriter. I mean, I don't see any reason to accept that view necessarily, but it's just interesting how this letter really talks about we all the way through. He says, I'm praying for you that what? What's his first prayer for that church that they would what be filled with the knowledge of his will filled with the knowledge of his will apparently this is what they sought they wanted spiritual knowledge you ever heard of Gnosticism it was an early movement in the church it came after this letter this is you know a first century church letter the, the movement of Gnostics came largely at the end of the first century that's why Paul, uh, John's epistles are so heavy on it John wrote toward the very end of the first century, it was really starting to come into being then that Gnosticism took hold. You know what that means? It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. It was a movement that said, you're saved by what you know. By that I mean secret knowledge. I need to bring you into the club. I need to take you aside. You know, this is where you get like the Jehovah's Witness kind of movement, where it's selective. You know, it's, it's only for certain people. You know, I've got to see if you're really in the club. I've got to find out if you're worthy or not. You know, and before, you, it's, it's the uh, Christian science kind of approach, Scientology kind of approach. Mormonism does the same thing. I get you, you can come so far on day one, but you can't get behind the secret door. That's only for people who've reached level two. But to get to level two, you need to come to some meetings and read some material, and then I'll move you to the next stage. And then as you get closer and closer to that inner circle, kind of earning your way in, they, it's more of a cultish kind of taking over what you think and who you are. And it's a very knowledge-centric kind of approach. It's not based in truth, certainly. And what it does is it commands attention in your life to the point where you are them and they are you. And cults all work this way to some degree. But Gnosticism began to invade the early church because it said all that Christ did on the cross and what was written in the gospel itself is not enough. It's starting, it starts you in, kind of gets you in the door. But now you have to progress up levels of knowledge. And there's secret knowledge, and only certain men know it, and they'll share it only to who they want. Very dangerous. It's a very, it's a very seductive and dangerous approach to controlling people. Well, it hadn't really blossomed yet, but the early stages of it were apparently in the church, sort of those first thoughts along those lines. And there's this sense now of, oh, there's something more I need to know. Well, tell me what it is. You know, this is a well-meaning Christian who's just being deluded and chasing after it. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, I want you to be filled with the knowledge but I want you to be filled with the right kind of knowledge and not from the wrong places, from the right places. And, you know, you see people doing it today, too. I, I want you to realize we're going to make a moment of application here. Give me examples, if you will. See if you come up with the same thoughts I did. 
Give me examples today of where you see this today in the church. Now, I'm not, the ones I've already listed are not the church. They're false faith, false religions. So put them aside. What about just within our little world? Are we susceptible to this? What forms would it take for us in the church? A seeking of knowledge for the purpose of knowing what God is, who God is and what he wants for us, but seeking it from the wrong sources or in the wrong ways, rather than from the right ways. How about Oprah and Dr. Phil? Rush Limbaugh, from a political perspective. Yeah, substituting politics for faith. But you see where I'm going with those names? I mean, they're not purporting to be the church, are they? But if you haven't watched, or if you've watched or listened to what those people are saying or writing in the last couple, three years, it's heavy on a spiritual focus or spiritual bent, but completely false in its perspective. And it's very much become faddish for people throughout the world, including those in the church, to go there first for matters you know, uh, that concern them. Family matters, personal marriage matters. I mean, you know, the things that we all understand and come about in life, where do we go for our knowledge? Well, Oprah knows. Dr. Phil has the answer. Chicken soup for the soul seemed to work for so-and-so. The, light, the latest Christian bestseller down the road. Now, am I saying each and every one of those things are evil? No. I mean, there's a continuum here. What I am suggesting is, for a Christian who should know better, who has the benefit of the Scriptures and the, and the ability to understand them because they have the Holy Spirit, where would we go first? Where should we go first? Right. God's Word is... I mean, let me put it this way. If there is any semblance of truth to be found in the world outside of the Bible, it's only because they happen to align with the Bible. Right? So if there's somebody like Phil, Dr. Phil, who's not a Christian, from what I can tell, who happens to say something that is literally truth, it's only because he coincidentally found himself for a moment aligned with the Bible and probably didn't even know it. But apart from those moments, the rest of the time it's just babble. It's just human thought. Without the benefit of true knowledge, as Scripture reveals it. This is truth. That's why we say Christ is the truth. Because everything about who He is and what He did and what He said is God's embodiment of truth given to men, revealed to men. So, I don't, you know, you come into my house and I have books outside of the Bible on my bookshelves. So, you know, this isn't, I don't want to become so rigorously strict about what I'm saying that you miss the bigger picture here. The picture isn't to, you know, block out any other source of knowledge in the world. It's to just filter it all through the lens of Scripture. And in order to do that, I have to know what's in this book. I mean, to not know this leaves me prey to whatever might come my way that captures my attention. Um, you know, the movies, just to give you another example, we see the guy in the black hat and the guy in the white hat. And even the, even the densest member of the audience can kind of bring out the point for themselves, bad guy, good guy, right? So if the enemy would always come at us with a pitch, you know, fork in his hand and a tail and ear, you know, horns and... If he made himself, if he revealed himself for who he really was at, at all times, he'd stand no chance, for the most part, in capturing our attention because it'd be like the black hat and the white hat. Oh, okay, I see which one's which. I can tell. So what he does is he puts a white hat on. Exactly. So he goes after you with the Bible. That's what he did with woman. He didn't. You know, what he did was he quoted back God's word in an adulterated form to woman in the garden, and, is, uh, and in doing so, deceived her. So th there's a there's a purpose and a plan in all he does that's intending to rob you of the truth by coming up so close alongside it that unless you're very careful in your knowledge of Scripture, you're easily swayed by that falsehood because it's so close to the original. And yet, in the difference is everything. Because the difference makes it what it's not. It takes it from truth to lie. So, Paul's first point as he comes into this prayer time, this, this moment early in the letter, is to say, 
you know, I want you to be filled with the knowledge that you should have, but I want you to be filled with it from the right source and in the right way. Um, and by the way, I would include in that list of sources that you need to be careful about, friends and family. Now, this isn't about cutting yourself off from friends and family. What, what I'm saying here is that if you don't, again, know what God would have to say on an issue in your life out of Scripture, and you go to a friend or family member, now you're fully dependent on that person having knowledge of Scripture, otherwise you're getting ungodly advice. I mean, or again, maybe by coincidence they happen to hit the nail on the head, but you know, those people can be helpful if you have trust in them to have a similar godly, scripturally-based perspective. Otherwise, it's just more human knowledge. You know, I, not that it's all bad, but it just it brings back the basic point of unless you have this lens in place, you're, you're a victim, in a sense, to anyone whose advice is wrong. And the more you trust them, the more of a victim you're potentially going to be. He, he's now told them, I want you to know the knowledge. I want to move you away from that. Where does he move them toward? in the verses we've already read. I want you to have a knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'll give you a couple of verses here. Just I have more, but I'm only going to give you a couple for the sake of time. Hebrews 1, 1 and 1, 2. Look, the writer of the Hebrews, many think maybe Paul, says it this way. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The writer of the Hebrews makes this breaking point for us. He says, look, it is true that in the, last, in the prior days, God spoke a little bit here, a little bit there, to one prophet through another. That's how our fathers heard the revelation of God in, the last, in those days. But in these days, which he now calls the last days, meaning there won't be any more to come, there won't be any other transition. We're in the last phase, if you will. He's spoken through His Son. Which means several things. He's spoken through what Christ said, what He did as He lived, and the revelation that Christ has given through the Apostles' writing in the New Testament. All right? That is it. He's not giving you more. Now, that's enough. It's sufficient. It's all God believes we need to know for what He's called us to do in these days. So there is no other source. So this is why someone like me or anyone else could stand with you today and say, if someone comes to you saying they know more than what this book is prepared to show you because of some special insight God gave them, if it does not align with what is already here, it cannot be acceptable. It's this idea that I now have some special dispensation from God to go further than he's gone already in his word. You have reason to hear what I say as equal to what's already been written. Uh, just to, to highlight an obvious example, the idea that within the Catholic Church that a pope could give you something that is equal to Scripture is essentially this thought that there is more revelation yet to come. That what was given as this canon was finished with revelation, as John wrote it as the last book of the New Testament, what comes now since then could be held as equal with what's already here because God's still at work revealing. That he didn't finish, in other words. What we hear from Paul... And what we hear from the writer of the Hebrews, what you hear out of the last couple of verses in Revelation is, if anyone changes what's written here, adds to it or takes it away, they are an anthem. They, they, are, they are to be judged harshly for that. Essentially, they are an unbeliever. Anyone willing to do it is defining for themselves, for you, that their heart is really not a heart of belief. Sort of a litmus test. So, he's saying where you want to go for that knowledge is not from these people that are teaching you, but from where you already got it from, from the word of truth, from Christ himself, from the gospel. He says in verse 10, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Look at, this is probably the most important principle of the New Testament. It's the most commonly discussed one, let me put it that way. 
I mean, apart from salvation itself, the most important principle of the New Testament to believers, let's say, written to believers. He's drawing a clear connection here between two things. What are those two things? What you do, your behavior, your fruit, and what you know. What you know and what you do are connected. That's the most important principle of the New Testament written to believers. If you don't get anything else out of reading the Bible in the New Testament, apart from faith itself, it is to know that what you know has everything to do with what you do. They are intimately connected. We call that fruit. It's one of the most important principles you'll find anywhere. Jesus established it first in Matthew 7.15. Listen to this real quickly. He says, Beware of the false prophets. Interesting, he's warning them about false teachers. That's what Paul's contending with. Look how Jesus puts it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruit. It's a basic principle that works in two ways in our lives. First, for discerning false teachers. Hey, if you have any question about whether what you're hearing from so-and-so is truth or not, just get to know them. Just spend some time around them. It may not be something you can do in a moment, fair enough, but just take some time to get to know them. If what you see in their life doesn't align, I mean, clearly they're not perfect. We're not making this a, a test where they have to reach perfection with you. But in general, look at what they say. L- listen to their speech. Look at how they organize their life, their priorities, how they live their life, how they raise their kids, what they do when they're at church, what they do when they're at work, uh, you know, how they treat their spouse. Just look at it all. Now, perfection is not the standard, but if you don't see fruit there, if you don't see the Holy Spirit at work, if you don't see what you know is in the Scripture reflected to some degree in their life, why would you care what they say? They're, they're showing who they are by their fruit. The second principle, which we'll cover a lot more next week, is this. Do you want to have a better, more fruit? Do you want to produce more fruit in your life in those respects? What is the key? It's not, it's not, I mean, I want to be clear about this. It's not that we can't get benefit from a lot of other disciplines in our Christian walk. They're all there for reasons. Prayer, fellowship, in one way or another. All the ways that the church body gathers and operates. None of it I'm throwing away. But you know what the key is to getting to your place in your life where you reflect Christ more and, and the benefits and the blessings of, of that come to you? It's, it's fundamentally your knowledge. There's a direct correlation between the two. N- not general knowledge. Not prideful, puffed-up knowledge, but true knowledge of God, who He is, and His character, and His will for your life, as it's revealed in Scripture, which doesn't come easy. I wish I could write the chicken book, for, you know, the chicken soul book for Christian living, and, and just you know, give it to you in five pages, and you don't have to spend the time. It doesn't work that way, because it's not about your studyfulness, your studifulness. It's about the relationship that is established with Christ when you spend time in His presence. You know, it's the, the analogy of a marriage. The marriage is stronger when you spend time together. You can't shorten that down to a, a Cliff Notes kind of primer and expect it to come out good in the end. Similarly, we don't become more Christ-like in our life unless our time in the Word is a preeminent part of our week. And it's because of the presence of the Lord working through His Word that we will be molded into His image. So what Paul's about to do in this group is show them that they already have all they need for bearing the fruit that they want to bear. Furthermore, they ought to be judging those who teach them on the fruit that they bear. And those principles will come out now as we look into the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Thank you for your patience. So let me close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for your time, the time you gave us this morning in your word. 
Father, we pray that as we come back into Colossians in the weeks to come, you'd be able to uh, give us the perspective in the mind that Paul had as he opens up this letter and continues it. But Father, more than anything, I pray that we would see this letter as perhaps coming to us as an audience so that we would be prepared to act on it. Let the Holy Spirit do, its, do His work in our hearts, Father, by the truth of Your Word. And I pray, Father, we'll go out into the world that You've given us to minister to with a renewed desire to reflect You by our, by our life as we live it out according to Your Word. We praise You and thank You, and we ask, Father, if it be Your will, we return next week. In Jesus' name, Amen.